and welcome to Fact Schmacks. It's the podcast good enough to get you a C. Minus. My name's Matt, and I've got a story to tell. And my name's Kev. I have a story to interrupt. You know, Kevin, speaking of stories, I do uh, have a story, yeah. but what I don't have is a flashy segue to get us to the, the segment. So why don't we just roll right on into a game of Fact Schmacks? Wait a minute. What happened to your new bit? Yeah, that's it. I thought, you know, I, th- I was that's thinking for, for the a new minute bit. that maybe the new it was bit too would much. just be a different new bit every day mm-hmm. and that <laughs> would be good. That would be kind of fun, but it's yeah. too, it's too much. Okay. Too much effort. I'll, I'll, one of these days C I'll figure podcast. out. Yeah. One of these days I'll figure out segues and intros and stuff. You know. <laughs> Social graces. You get, you're getting a story out of me and that's pretty good. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. That's all we can ask of our old pal, Jim Atomic. <laughs> Bringing it back. So I have a, uh, a very deeply researched fact schmacks. This is a matter that I hold very dear to me. Oh, interesting. Uh, it's something that I, I value, I look forward to, and uh, I just want to share with everybody some facts that I learned about one of my favorite things, the Costco hot dog. <laughs> Okay. Fact wait. or schmacked? Costco. I know one. Th- Sorry. Okay. No, let's hear it. Maybe I got to. I know one quick. thing about the Costco hot dog, and that, that is, at one point, uh, the the CEO who started the company left, but he was still like still on as like the chairman or something. And the the guy was like the current CEO was going to raise the price of the hot dog, and the the old CEO told him basically like. If you raise the price of that hot dog, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. That's uh, <laughs> the only thing I know about the Costco uh, hot dog. Is that one of your facts? Not anymore. <laughs> no, you know what? We'll, we'll stick to it. Costco hasn't changed the price of its $1.50 hot dog and soda combo in 30 years. What oh, do you wow. think, Matt? Factor schmacked. God damn it. <laughs> Fact or schmacked? <laughs> Costco's. <laughs> you're just loving this, aren't you? You've ruined it. I am. <laughs> That's an easy one, though. Everybody knows that. Anyhow, fact or Everybody schmacked. Everybody knows fact that. Fact or schmacked, Matt. Costco hot dog supplier deliver enough hot dogs each day to feed the population of New York. Interesting. Yeah, isn't it? It is interesting. Fact or schmacked, Matt. Yes, the Kevin. average Costco hot dog is actually three years old, thanks thanks to the flash freezing process the dogs undergo during production. Huh. Tick tock, my friend. I, I think that last one is not true. Final answer? Yes. The last two were not true, so is that like oh! a split? I don't know how that works. <laughs> Well, we no don't one's keep keeping any score. score Nobody anymore. cares. Now we know more about Costco hot dogs than we ever wanted to. In fact, yeah. we only know one thing about Costco hot really? dogs. I well, now bullsh- two things. I just bullshitted the rest of it. <laughs> no, they're both fake. I don't know how many they deliver in a day. I don't no, even know what the population things. of New York is. What two things? No, because I told I told you that the old CEO threatened to like beat the shit out of the new yeah, CEO yeah. if he ever raised the price of the hot dog. <clears throat> but I mean, it was you know. Then the price of the hot dog never changed. It's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I yeah. guess you had more value in that than I did. Just tell your story. 
<laughs> Let's skip. No, I usually skip lately. <laughs> lately, I, uh, an addition that I've been making to the podcast, which I've actually been been really enjoying, is finding some sort of little quote or something to set the story off. That's actually going to come a little later. Um, just I think for the flow of the show, it's going to work out much better here if we start with just a little bit on experimental design. I went to school for sociology. I didn't do well in it. Allegedly. You know. Allegedly. <laughs> the but last I did part go to was school. alleged. I do, I do have a piece of paper that say I went there, even though I was rarely there. Um, but uh, one of the things I did take was experimental design, so I know a little bit about it. Um, I'm going to really simplify a lot of things, uh, but I just want to kind of explain a little bit about, you know, how a good experiment is designed before we go on. Now, and, and just clarify, we're going to be talking about, like, social experiments, psychological experiments, not uh, like like chemistry like experiments or data f- quantum yeah kind still going to be a lot science. of soft science still a lot of gathering data data is important but you know studies involving people and subjects and not like chemicals quantifiable and, and data that stars hard data yeah you'll you'll see but congratulations Kevin thank you you're Matthew. A, yeah you're you you're a scientist. Of course, you, I am quite clearly. You are. You, you, you have a theory. Your, your theory. I got a couple theories. Is, you got a couple theories, but this theory is that runcibles are contributing to a, a brangulate deficiency. Uh, I'm sorry, you, a whatable. A runcible. They're nonsense words. It doesn't matter. Okay. You know, but for every for every runcible that people consume, there's a corresponding decrease in brangulate levels. That's your uh, your theory. So you want to design, as a, as a scientist, you want to design a study that's going to test that idea. What would a good study to determine, you know, your, your hypothesis look like? You know, again, talking mostly about social things or medicine or things where people are going to do a lot of self-reporting. You're going to involve people. Sure. Well, you're already a good portion of the way there. You have a clearly stated hypothesis. Uh, one in which one variable is being directly tested against another variable. You think, uh, you know, brangulates, uh, brangulates and runcibles are uh, are related there. One thing versus one thing. Um, and, you know, the reason you want to test one thing against one thing is to try and account for as many confounding variables uh, as you can. A confounding variable is just like a third thing that's actually responsible for both of the things that you're looking at. Think about, like, looking at sunburns and ice cream consumption you know there's you you, they're correlated right if you were to measure both sure but they have nothing to do with each other it it has it has to do with temperature and the sun right so it's a classic third kind of confounding variable that you would you know it's a classic example of one uh now assuming you've designed your study well to account for a confounding variable, of course and all I have, that man. sort I'm of a thing. Scientist, you're a scientist, and you're yeah. a damn good one. This isn't uh, rocket science. And, this is science, science, right? And we're talking about like currently. So you pass all the ethical reviews and stuff, and then you pass all the reviews to get funding, and blah blah blah. At some point, you're going to need to get people or whatever you're looking at, animals, people. You need to get things involved. Guinea now, pigs. This is a tricky Everything is a guinea pig to me as a scientist. Everything's a guinea pig. Yes. 
Uh, this is a tricky bit of business and a lot can go wrong here. Ideally, you want people who are willing to consume these runcibles and have their brangulates measured. They're willing to do it. But you want to get a group of people together that's reflective of the general population, you know, socioeconomically, as they would say, racially. Rich, poor, black, male, female. Right. Exactly. As close to representative of the general population as you can feasibly get. Right. Um, The push pull there is that, you know, it's most cost effective, obviously, to include as few people in any sort of study as you can. Um, So there is like. There's some fancy math you can do to figure out what kind of uh, sample size you need. Uh, let's say you wanted to, you're doing like a survey, for example, and you were um, trying to gauge opinions for a population the size of the U.S. You'd need to survey about 2,400 people before you can reasonably assume that you've you've uh, interviewed enough people to be... 95% sure that that you're right if you you notice any correlation. Do you understand okay. what I mean there? Is that, uh, does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, you need a big sample size. It actually, once you hit about a, a population of about 20,000, the sample size doesn't really change wildly. It's it's generally about 2,000 to 2,500 people after that, and you're, you're pretty much good. Again, as long as you're selecting people properly. Um. Even if you get the population breakdown right, the way you pick people or the way you attract people can get you into troubles too. Uh, for example, did you put out an ad that said study subjects wanted and just try and pick people from the general population that way? Or did you put out an ad that said study subjects wanted for a study about runcibles? Uh, because one of those ads is likely to get you, you know, people who are already... Yeah interested in in runcibles and you know the other is likely just going to get you the average joe even if you don't you know even if you just put out neutrally worded um ads the the place you put them out can matter too if you put it out in runcible monthly then i get it that's yeah that attracts a certain type of person right so that that adds a bias but once you have your people or your subjects or whatever, you need to start with a treatment group and a control group. So generally you're trying to compete, compare one group against another. Um, not every study is designed this way. Not every study has to be designed this way. Uh, but in a good study, that would kind of be the, the way it was designed. One group you're giving the runcibles to, and the other group is getting something harmless and, and runcible-like. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm getting at. And everyone in this process should be blind. What I mean by that, not, not no. physically, not know whether they're getting treatment. The people who are administering the treatment shouldn't know whether they're giving treatment or not giving treatment. The people who are collecting the data shouldn't know whether they are um, collecting data from people who are getting treatment or not getting treated. The people who are processing the data statistically shouldn't know any of that. Right. There's a person who comes in at the very end. Now, should you not have a third group, though, that's just, like, not getting anything? Like, one group your, gets that's, a, your control, right? Well, I guess the third group that's not getting anything is theoretically the general population. Okay. Sure. Um, that's And that is your control. I, I see what you mean because the, the there is the placebo effect. There's also the nocebo effect where people who think, you know, if you say this drug could have X side effects, the people who get the sugar pills will report the side effects too. Right. Uh, which is a fun little thing. Um, but uh, yeah, 
I, I, not generally, no. You're just treating whether this thing actually works, whether it doesn't. The sure. placebo effect is pretty quantifiable at this point, so you don't need to worry about that too much so long as, you know, you need to be aware of it and you need to account for it and, you know, but, yeah. Um, so at the end of the at the of the research, there's somebody who comes in and basically unmasks the data, and then you you can figure out whether there's been, you know, any effect or not. Like that what celebrity singer song where it's like... Sure, yeah. You know, people in costumes. Absolutely. Now, like... What the what you're going to be doing in most sciences when you're looking at, you know, even the soft sciences, they're going to use statistics. You're going to be trying to establish some sort of statistical significance, which is just fancy math to say that these things are related. It doesn't prove correlation or sorry, causation, but it does prove correlation. You sure. can, you know, say statistically this goes up, this goes up too. I can't say why, but hey, isn't it interesting that these two things are related, right? Um, there's a lot of fancy math that goes into that. Like I said, you got to be sure that you've got the right sample size. There's also something called a confidence interval for a lot of soft sciences and a lot of like kind of soft medicine, a 95% confidence interval is considered to be okay. Um, I want to, and I want to talk about that just for a second because a 95% confidence interval, that sounds like, man, that sounds like a slam dunk, right? Dude, like I'd 90, put money on that all day long. 95% right? sure. There you go. You got my we're bad. 95% sure that what we're seeing is, is a, an actual co- statistical correlation, not causation. Again, <clears throat> we're 95% sure we're seeing a statistical <clears throat> correlation. So they, there's a, fu- yeah. there's a 5% chance we're just seeing a funny blip in the math and you know over if you collected data for longer you'd see that ironed out and there wouldn't be a correlation right sure it's a five percent chance this is just because of a, a weird thing because we looked right then and that's what was going on but another way of saying 95 percent is saying one in 20 well let's talk about a different kind of study for a second let's say you had a study where Instead of testing one thing against one thing, you just said, like, I'm just interested in if uh, runcibles could have any positive health effects. And so what you do is you take a bunch of people and you have them list every... Oh, like they did with medical marijuana. Or whatever. Like, you just have them list everything that they think is wrong with them. Yeah. And you study a bunch of people. And then for, like, two weeks... Some of whom have the treatment, some of whom don't or whatever. And then you have them list a bunch of things that they think maybe have gotten better in that time. And if you test hmm, 20 Not things. fact schmacks would be the answer. <laughs> right. If you look for 20 things, there's a good chance you're going to find one, right? Sure. Just, just out of chance. So that, you call that a fishing expedition. So like a well-designed study, it's one of the reasons why you just test one thing against one thing. And, right. you know, you don't just go lo- looking for open-ended answers. Um Really, the, the the idea here is to eliminate as much possibility uh, for bias on your part as possible because you're a smart guy. Of course, Kevin, you're a scientist. scientist. Yeah, right? Scientific and shit. Yes, you have designed this amazing study, and you know, buddy, you know what I you're going to see. Of course I yeah. do. I'm a scientist, man. Of course. You're a scientist. Uh, and so, I mean, this scientist. study is just like a formality at this point anyways. Right? You know what you're going to see. Of course so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a real possibility for introducing bias, conscious or unconscious. Uh, and that's something that does happen. It happens a lot. Um, 
So the, the whole scientific apparatus is set up to try and eliminate as much of that as possible. Doesn't mean you can ever completely eliminate it, but you just try to be on the lookout for that sort of stuff, right? Right. 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 So that's, that's kind of the end of my little spiel on experimental design. Before we move on... I probably have should have delivered that, being the scientist and all, but, you know, <laughs> you are the narrator here, so... I am the narrator. Is there any, any, do you have anything you want me to clear up uh, for the audience and not for you before we move on? <laughs> you know what? I think uh, we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll give it the old Kev summary here. Uh, All right. You got two things, you, you know, two groups. You're looking to find one answer. Yeah. One, you know, so one variable, one answer, two groups. And be very careful about how you pick people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. So moving on then. All right. Hate. Let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. There are 387.44 million miles of printed circuits in wafer-thin layers that fill my complex. If the word hate was engraved on each nano-angstrom of those hundreds of millions of miles, it would not equal one billionth of the hate I feel for humans at this micro-instant for you. Hate. Hate. That's my dramatic reading of uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Uh, which is a, a sci-fi short story by uh, an author named Harlan Ellison. If you haven't read it or experienced it, you don't, don't know about it, it's a really, really awesome story about a kind of alternate uh, history Cold War super intelligent computer that winds up destroying all of humanity after it becomes self-aware, not oh, out Chad of survival, uh, but because it... It absolutely just hates humanity for making it, for giving it all that power and nothing to do. And it keeps five people alive and tortures them for hundreds of years using science, all the science it has to keep them alive, to torture them over and over again. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal short story. Sounds like a downer, though. (laughs) It is quite a downer. But central theme that we just talked about there was hate and prisoners. Um, we're going to be talking today about the Stanford uh, prison experiment. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Philip George Zimbardo was born on March 23rd, 1933. He is an American psychologist who in the 1970s became famous for his experiment delving into how hate ferments itself between prison guards and the prisoners that they administer. Now, he himself had apparently grown up in a pretty rough part of New York and had seen a lot of friends get into trouble with the law, go out to prison, become sort of institutional criminals, as we we would say. You know, you get separated from society. The only people you know are criminals. You get out of prison, can't get a job. The only thing you really know how to do is is crime at that point. You know, 
in a lot of ways, prison makes criminals, but that's a topic for a different time. Um, but uh, while teaching at Stanford University in 1971, Zimbardo was given money by the U.S. Navy, uh, who was presumably interested in trying to eliminate bad interactions between soldiers and MPs. Um, they were also kind of, you know, everybody had this kind of interest at the time in the roots of cruelty, especially in post-war time. Um, you know, particularly someone who's born in 33 is going to be very interested in that sort of thing. Um, Zimbardo himself liked to group himself in with Stanley Milgram, the the Milgram experiments. Do you know the Milgram experiments? No, maybe just elaborate for your listener. Milgram experiments were the experiments where they got people to shock each other. Yeah, uh, okay, really. Absolutely. It was an actor on the other side who was pretending to be shocked. Yeah, and, and, and they would, would offer them like, like money or like different various things, wasn't it? Or? No, but they they they'd just be saying like, "I've got a heart condition. I've got a, this is you know, please stop, please stop." And and the the subject, the study subject, would be sitting with an experimenter, and the experimenter would be going, "You know, you need to continue for the good of the study." And they'd see how far that people would be willing to go in administering a shock. There, There's all sorts of... That's a different episode. Um, that's a harder study to engage with than the one we're going to be talking with today because it's it's not as flawed, okay. let's necessarily say. Um, but but Zimbardo did like to think of himself as, as kind of in that, in that group. Um, the initial idea he had was to create a prison-like atmosphere but randomly select who's a prisoner and who's a guard from your pool of study subjects. Now, the goal is to create an environment where there isn't an inherent distrust between people. You know, anybody could be a prisoner and anybody could be a guard. Uh, well, we'll see how they do with that initial idea as things go on. Um, but So Zimbardo puts out an ad. Did I say, sorry, that we're going to be at the end of this having a discussion about all of the things that they've done wrong in this particular experiment I with I, your new I gathered that with your newfound knowledge of uh, of how this should be sorry I just wanted to make sure you were on your toes uh, Dude, I'm a scientist so you're a scientist you know this sort of stuff yeah. I don't need to tell you Zimbardo put out an ad in the help wanted section of the Palo Alto Times reading Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 a day for one to two weeks beginning August 14, uh, along with some contact details. Uh, from that, they received 75 applicants. Uh, from that, they whittled it down to 24 candidates. All uh, So predominantly white, middle class with no criminal record. Stanford University students. From that group of 24, nine of them were randomly assigned as prisoners, nine as guards, and three were held back as replacements, just in case. Now, the prisoners were told they would not be physically abused, but that they could expect to lose their civil liberties. I want to tell you to tell me at the end, whether you think that anything that happened rose to the level of physical abuse. The guards were told that they couldn't abuse the prisoners physically, but were left with the general instruction of keep order. And they were not told 
that they were an active part of the experiment. So they were more or less under the impression that they were sort of with the experimenters and their job was to keep order and maybe maybe even pre- uh, provoke reactions in the prisoners. Now, on orientation day for the guards, the guards were given uniforms and with reflective, uh, you know, kind of aviator style glasses uh, so that the prisoners couldn't look you know them in the eye. You were going, son? That sort of thing. The <laughs> uh, given kind of generic prison uniforms. Uh, I don't know if I already said that. Uh, and they were introduced to Zimbardo, who would be acting as the superintendent of the prison, quote Super unquote. Nintendo Chalmers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and there was also an undergraduate researcher who was part of the experiment uh, uh, group uh, who was playing the part of the warden. The guards then built the makeshift prison, which was in the basement of one of the psychology buildings on the Stanford campus. The prison consisted of three cells, each measuring six feet by nine feet. Uh, they were to house three prisoners each. That's, so, Dude, that's like... Terrible. Nothing. That's, that's nothing. terrible, right? Yeah, that's, that's like three guys can yeah. stand up and three guys can lay down in bunks. They're, they each, so uh, each cell had uh, three cots, three mattresses, and three pillows, three blankets. Uh, no light, no clocks, no way to tell the passing of time. There was also a solitary confinement cell measuring two feet by two feet. By seven feet. I actually had to to try to to envision this. I doorways are more than two feet wide. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm like like uh, I'm a wide wide shouldered fella. I think I wonder. I don't even think I'd be able to get in that. Yeah. I mean, I, I pulled the tape measure out of myself and I was like, holy shit, like I wouldn't be able to, yeah, it would be tight. Yeah. So that's um, not great. Now, yeah, like imagine being shoved in that locker. Uh, there was uh, uh, also like a 30 by 10 foot span in front of the cells that was called the yard. This is just in the basement of a building. So it's like they've taken an office that had right. three offices that, you know, yeah. Now, if an inmate needed to use the toilet, they would need to be blindfolded and escorted to a bathroom so as not to break the illusion of the prison. Uh, If it was nighttime, they were given a bucket. So three dudes in the cell and a bucket. Oh, man. Like, that's not even, that's inhumane. Yeah, yeah. Right? (laughs) So with all the plans. Like, that's like, I don't even think a POW camp would be like that bad. Well, I, I mean, definitely maybe. mention that they maybe they would obviously but. that is actually uh funny enough that is gonna come up um so with everything set here uh the experiment is set to begin so on sunday august 15th 1971 nine college students were arrested by the palo alto police department they sent real cops out to people's houses arrested them for real, like perp walk out to the car, searched. They took them down to the police station where they were fin- fingerprinted, photographed, had a file opened on them, and then they're placed in a holding cell. Really standard stuff right up until this point. Now, I, 
After this, they're blindfolded and transferred to the Stanford campus's new prison facility. Once there, now this is in an underground basement, so I'm going to say the word yard, but just remember this is in a this is in an office and, you know, enclosed office in the basement, but once there, they're stripped naked, sprayed with deodorant and made to stand naked in the yard uh, for a prolonged period of time before being given their prison prison issued outfits. So far, not making a tremendous first impression. Uh, I just want to remember that the goal of this study initially was to create a neutral environment where there was no distrust between the prisoners and the guards. Right. That was initially the stated goal. Now, like, at some point, I kind of didn't get into this, but he he decided to kind of, like, push all these buttons at the same time. But, yeah. Um, Now, once they were settled in, they're visited by the warden, who's, you know, one of the, the, he's the undergrad study uh, or research uh, person who's in on the experiment, who read them the prison rules and their identification numbers. Uh, they were only to be identified by their number. They were also to learn and recite the rules at every count, which would happen three times a day. Now, you might be thinking, there is no way that a professional podcast like this would have something like mentioning that there were a bunch of rules that people had to memorize and then not include any of those rules. <laughs> You'd be thinking there's no way they would do that. Anyways, uh, speaking of counts, the first one happened at 2 a.m. on Monday the 16th. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was not received well. Uh, the prisoners, who had not really acclimatized to their new prison life, became immediately agitated, ripping off their number IDs from their um, gowns. I forgot to say, sorry, the uh, the outfits they were given was like a medical gown with a nylon sock they were to put over their head. Basic idea was to strip everybody of their individuality, so right. erase your hair, erase your, your you know, your body. Um. So they ripped their numbers off, they ripped off their nylon socks, and they started barricading the cell door shut with their cots. Uh, this had escalated really quickly. Uh, when the morning shift guards came in, uh, they used their numbers to quell this rebellion. First, they used a fire extinguisher on the prisoners, uh, firing into the room to calm them down, I, I guess. That, uh, that then they took calms them down? <laughs> apparently. Once they had them sufficiently calm, they took away their clothes, blankets, and mattresses. I want to say, repeat here, we're on the morning of the second day, like the first full day, I guess, and they've, these student guards have taken away their clothes, blankets, and mattresses. I feel like this goes just straight Lord of the Flies. (laughs) They also uh, sentenced the worst offenders to time in solitary, which at this point was agreed to be kept at a one-hour maximum sentence. Which is like one hour of standing in a two-by-two two room. I don't even think I could sit down in a two-by-two two space. Oh, I definitely couldn't. I'm, I'm not sure. Actually, you'd be, uh, it's surprising the little spaces I've been able to fit into in my days, mm-hmm. but that's fucking, that's small. Uh, within 36 hours of the experiment starting, one of the prisoners had to be let go because he was showing signs of a mental breakdown. Uh, In a bid to instill more order on the prison, the guards uh, designated one of the three cells as a privileged cell. They decided because they couldn't hurt the prisoners, they would psychologically hurt them. Um, 
in the privilege cell, you'd be allowed things like bedding and soap and a toothbrush. Uh, and they shoved everybody else into the remaining two cells, naked and dirty. Um, eventually, the prisoners were recombined, but the five prisoners, which at this point would be five, uh, who weren't in the luxury cell were, were kind of suspicious of the three who are, or who were, because um, they're thinking maybe they... Are they like informants or snitches or something? About what? Why are they getting like that's the thing? Like they were just they've been, been there, there for like a day, right? Yeah. Uh, the experimenters claim they did this by design. Like they they I don't which I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, but uh, on the third day. Visitors were allowed to come. They were allowed to have visitors, like normal prison experiments. Uh, but it kind of seems like they clearly knew what they were doing was a little shady because everybody was fed well, shaved, cells were cleaned. Uh, this is day three, and they're like, you know, fuck, clean shit up. Jesus is coming, you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? <laughs> uh, the, the visitors were, you know, got the real prison experience too. They had to register and wait and meet with the warden to discuss their loved one's cases first. Uh, and visiting time was supervised and kept very short. Only two visitors at a time too. Now, at the end of that day, this is the third day. So, a wait, rumor, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, yeah. Hold up. Yeah. So they've been there for a day, maybe two. Are their families three. in on the, three? Are their families three. in on this? Well, they they knew that. So they knew that they were going to be unavailable for two, for three weeks or two weeks. Sorry, they were told to be like home at a certain time. That it was going to start at a certain time. Um, they knew it was going to be about prison. Okay. So at a certain point, they must have been able to contact their families, whatever, and say, "Hey, come visit me here." Yeah. I don't know exactly okay. how that. That's exactly that's how, weird, how that worked. But they were, yeah, they were allowed visitors. I mean, it's the whole prison experiment. That was laid out ahead of time. Like, that was one of the things they could expect. They were, you know, you're not going to be physically abused. You will have your safety to the second way. There's going to be two opportunities or two opportunities a week for people to come uh, visit you. And you're going to get paid 15 bucks a day, which um, by the end of the experiment would have been uh, like $1,400 in 2021 money. So, like. Sure. You know, Not a bad paycheck for summer a college kid. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Couple uh-huh. cases of beer. Right. Maybe a month's rent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, probably a couple months. Yeah. A couple months rent back then. Your rent will be oh. $60. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, so uh, at the end of the third day, a rumor started spreading that the prisoner who had been released earlier the guy who'd had the mental breakdown, there was a rumor that he was faking it and he was going to come back and stage a prison break. Now, we're three days into this experiment, right? This is a really good example of how quickly the insanity escalated for everybody involved in this thing. So rumors start spreading, goes through the prisoners, then it goes through the experimenters, then it, or I mean, that maybe then it goes to the guards, then it goes to the experimenters. For whatever reason, the experimenters decide, all right, we're going to do the sensible thing here. We got a rumor that somebody's going to come and stage a prison break. We're going to stage a prison break. No. Oh, no, no, no. no. Okay. No, no, no. Come on. That would be ridiculous. No, what they did was they called the Palo, Palo Alto Police Department 
and asked them if they could move all of their prisoners into the, the police's real jail. Now, <laughs> the police, to their credit, said no, uh, citing insurance concerns. But, like, <laughs> I want to just, for a second, think about how this call would have went. Like, so, hey, police, I've got all these guys that I'm keeping prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> and i think someone's gonna try and come spring him can i keep him in your jail for a little bit <laughs> yeah right eh? uh now that obviously the police have been involved uh before but it is amazing the things you were allowed to do you know in the, the 50s 60s and 70s if you had oh yeah academic credentials sure probably still <laughs> So with with the police a dead end and the threat of a mass breakout looming, uh, Zimbardo called in as many guards as he could, placed bags over the prisoners' heads, and had them brought to a fifth-floor storage room. Zimbardo then dismantled the entire makeshift prison and waited there to confront any would-be heroes. Nobody showed up, and the whole thing was just, like, completely insane for no reason at all. So Uh, the the guys at the top bought into the rumor. Yes! Like, whole hog to the point where they moved all the prisoners. Day three. Three. So, hold Uh, up, hold up. The experimenters at this point are just, they're fully in, in... Involved. Okay, so just oh my, this is so insane. Uh, yeah, just keep going. I need to wrap my head around like three days. It's three days. Three days. Yeah. Yes. My God. Now, when the prisoners are brought back, the guards ramp up their authoritarian behavior. Uh, they start denying access to the bathroom. And in a real dick move, they start artificially extending the length of the counts to, like, allegedly hours at a time to count nine people. And we are back up to nine people, by the way. They restocked from one of their uh, one of their reserve guys. On the fourth day, Zimbardo brought in a Catholic priest to talk to the prisoners. He talked to most of the prisoners, all, all but one, uh, initially, Um Half of them introduced themselves by their number, uh, showing either their dehumanization or their adherence to the rules, because that's what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, One of the prisoners, prisoner 819, refused to speak to the priest. He wanted to talk to a doctor instead. He said he wasn't feeling good. Uh, Eventually, he was brought into another room and given a meal. They loosened his leg chains, just like, wrap your mind around that one for a second. He's a college student. Uh, While he was gone, the guards had the other prisoners start chanting prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner. And hearing this apparently sends prisoner 819 spiraling. He starts hysterically crying. Uh, Zimbardo at this point tells the prisoner it's okay. I think actually you need to go. This is this is too much for you. And the guy's like, no, I need to go back and prove that I'm a good prisoner. And at this point, like Zimbardo had to actually break character and say, like, hey, this is an experiment. Like, it's not it's not real. Just just go like you're going to get paid. Just go. I don't know if he paid him the whole time. But he, anyways, uh, prisoner 819 was replaced with prisoner 416. Uh, the fifth day was parole hearing day. 
The prisoners were chained together, heads bagged, and led off to their parole hearing, which was in a different room and in front of a bunch of people that they'd never seen before. Each person was asked if they would give up the money to be released. Each person said yes. Now, this was like the guy who was the parole hear- hearing guy. He was their actual prison expert. He was a guy who had been in some prisons or was a guard in some prisons. I can't remember exactly what his connection to prisons were. Um, I'm going to bring him up again later, this particular parole guy. But like, I think he thought it was a little strange that everybody would give up the entire reason that they were even doing this in the first place just to get out at that point. But nonetheless, you know, they were all sent back to their, their cells and told that the, uh, you know, the, the, the board would consider their cases and they would all hear their responses later. Well, later that day, Prisoner 416, who's the, the newest guy, everyone at this point is kind of like really settled into their fate. But 416, the newest guy, decides to go on a hunger strike. Now, rather than rallying behind his, his act of disobedience, the other prisoners turned on him like instantly, cursing and screaming at him. Uh, the guards became very angry, uh, and eventually they canceled visiting hours for everybody, doing a, a collective punishment sort of thing, which is would is the sort of thing that would be against the Geneva Convention. <laughs> right. We were talking about prison camps earlier. Yeah. Like we're five days into this and we're that breaking turns the Geneva people Convention. On other people, right? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh as speaking of which four one six four one six was then placed into solitary confinement for three hours. And at the end of the three hours, I think uh, the rest, I don't know, I'm not 100% sure on the timeline of this particular part, but the, at, at some point, the prisoners are given a choice. They could give up their blankets and prisoner 416 can come out of the hole, or they could keep their blankets and 416 spends the night in there. They kept their blankets. Jesus. Now, on the sixth day. It's like straight up tribal. On the sixth day, and I don't want to make too big a deal about this, because you know their families are came through, but they're not seeing the whole the whole picture. On the sixth day, a lady had a look at what was going on for the first time. <laughs> not just any lady. This is a PhD student, someone who knows. It's the future Mrs. Zimbardo, in fact. Her name's uh, Christina Maslack. She came in and had a few observations to offer about what was going on. I'm going to have to paraphrase here because this is I don't know exactly. It's fact max. I don't know exactly what she said, but essentially I think it was more or less, what the fuck? What are you doing? <laughs> what is any of this? Uh, she apparently told him that uh, this was unethical, that he was doing, he wasn't being a, a caretaker, a conscientious caretaker of this experiment, uh, that um, he had been changed by it. He was acting, like, you know, six days in, he's acting differently. And at this point, uh, Zimbardo did realize that maybe things had gone a little too far. So he ended the study early, uh, eight days earlier than anticipated, um, paid everybody for the whole time, 
And they did like a, a reconciliation where everybody was invited back. They did like a debriefing with all the prisoner groups saying, hey, this is a study we were doing. This is what we, this is what the study was about. Then they did a debriefing with the guards saying, hey, by the way, you were part of this study. We were studying how you were going to behave in this uh, situation. Um, and then uh, they did like a session where the guards and the prisoners sat together and they kind of aired their grievances with each other. There's a lot that I've left out of the story about like particular people. There's one guard in particular that people like to single out. As you know, I like to try to not talk about specific people, especially if they're still alive as much as I can. Um, just, you know, you can go look, you can go find that stuff if you want. Um, but really at the end of the day, uh, that's how the experiment ended as, you know, having the plug pulled early. Now, Zimbardo, he was a person who had always believed that bad environments create bad people. Even though he kind of set out to, you know, he said he was setting out to make an, an experiment that was, you know, anybody could be the prisoner, anybody could be the guard. There's no natural reason anybody could distrust each other. He did still create a very bad environment as part of his experiment, and that really fits into his worldview, which was that bad environments make bad people. Right. Uh, his study is has been very controversial. I think I don't uh, even yeah. think it was it was controversial very early on. Um when that's why I was still taking, talking about it. That's why we're still talking about it. When I was taking sociology in uh 2008, 2008 to like 2012, I think is when I was going to school. At that point, you know, when you're learning it, it's this is a this is not a great experiment. Is, right. is kind of how it was taught. Um, it, that, that's kind of its legacy at this point. But, you know, just after having gone through it, what were some of the problems, you know, to, not to be too much of a university class or whatever, but wh wh what were some of the problems that you observed with, uh, with the way this experiment was run? Uh, there's like a million variables, plus they manipulated the behavior of they they influenced the behavior of the guards. Yep. And Excellent. That influence on the guards rubbed off as a manipulation of the prisoners. So you didn't observe anybody in a natural role. You you saw them in an exacerbated, uh, caused. You caused negativity. You didn't allow the positivity to happen. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's there's, why I'm a scientist, man. <laughs> there's something all together. There's something called demand characteristics. And what that means is that if, if you're the subject of an experiment, you know, if you know what the experimenter kind of wants to see out of you, you might start doing that just to make them happy because like most people are like that. Most people want to make people happy. And if I'm sure. some guy's talking to me and I think he wants to hear something like, and it doesn't really matter to me one way or another. I might. That tie looks I great. Would, but, and then you're yeah, like, that right. Tie like is you, stupid. You can, sure. <clears throat> yeah. So you know What's that sort of thing definitely definitely happens. So there's yeah definitely demand char characteristics was a huge one of the, one of the major reasons why that was uh, that study was criticized. Uh, the, they were involved. Like the guy put himself in a position of power where he's directly influencing right. uh, what's he's going like the on. He's like puppet master. So you're, you're mm -hmm. introducing your bias, what you want to see. He introduced That's all that right. to that study. 
That's absolutely right. Was there anything else that you, uh, you said a million variables? What do you mean by that? Like what, what were you looking was, for? Because right. Yeah. What like, was the one thing being tested against one thing? Yeah, exactly. Because you introduced, uh, you introduced a hierarchy dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you introduced a, a sub hierarchy dynamic in the prisoners themselves. Yeah. And even in the guards themselves, having one on top, then, you know, you got f- at least four levels of tiers of a hierarchy of people standing in that. And so- I didn't even get into, there was uh, a hierarchy with the guards where, you know, Zimbardo said that there was like guards who were like, you know, good with the prisoners. There were guards who were like strict. And then there were guards who were like downright sadistic. Yeah. Um, now that's one thing that I remember. Uh, that people talk about a lot is how sadistic it became. Mm-hmm. But now, I think that there's a there for what it shows. I think the reason people are fascinated with this is because while on the whole, the experiment was to find out something in particular, say, or to examine the role of a guard versus like a inmate or something. I think that the one thing that people take away from this that fascinates them is how quickly it proved that you can really affect the way people behave in those situations. Sure. And and in that case, it is almost like the Milgram experiment where you can say that, you know, because the exper- the experimenter can really um or or a person in a position of authority can really make people do kind of cruel things. Sure. Um, or you give somebody power and how they can just just abuse it. I mean, yeah, well we'll we'll talk we will talk about that because well just, or or just to address that, the the guy who I'd said who is the uh parole guy who is the uh, their prison expert Apparently all the, the the most horrible stuff from this experiment is stuff that he had told them about from like third world prisons that he had seen or been to or or whatever. Right. Like the the buckets instead of toilets, uh the blindfolding, like Yeah, it's the, very most inhumane. of the extending the count, all that inhumane stuff was stuff that, you know, that wasn't those weren't those ideas. Those ideas were fed to them by somebody. Right. So they were influenced so, by the outside, then they in turn influenced it. It's like a there's too much signal in there. There's too much, yeah, too much signal interference. There's too many yeah. uh, confounding variables. It's really hard to eliminate anything. Right. But mm-hmm. like I said, the interesting thing about that experiment is looking at it, stepping back from it all and just going, okay, you gave nine people power and took it nine people's power away and look at how they behaved, even mm-hmm. with the influences. So... So you can say it's a bad experiment because it had influence, but sometimes I think people look at it like, well, this is how society could be. This is how things could go, Lord of the Flies. Like imagine that we have a, a drastic change in how our society is operated and we put some people who are really in charge of other people and give them free reign. How could mm-hmm. that turn out? I guarantee you that you would find some people just take it as a job. Some people will derive pleasure from that power. 
It happened now, in the concentration thing- camps. There would be guards who were good, guards who were brutal, and guards who were just doing everything they had to do to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so that that that's a very good point, and uh, going to talk about that kind of towards the end is a little button up here, not specifically about the Holocaust, because that's a bummer. Um, mm. Was there yeah, anything else that you... do bummers on fact <laughs> Yeah, no, certainly not. Enter uh, Kai Fek murders. Uh, anything, else, uh, anything else you notice in terms of uh, errors, in terms of things that just, you know, make this not quite smell right? Uh, well, they changed the parameters, too. I mean, they moved the prison. Yeah. They... Uh, oh, there's a, I mean, there was yeah. a lot of flying by the seat of the pants. Sure. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, not offhand. I mean, if I really sit and think about it, but on, on the spot, just get to what you're going to tell me. If you were to teach a class on selection bias, selection bias is errors and how you t- take people. Sure. This is maybe how you would start with it. So do you remember how they attracted people? Uh, they put an ad out. They put an ad out. Do you want me to read the text of that ad? Yeah. Again? The text of the ad was, they were looking for... Hang on, I have to scroll quite a ways up because I have... Oh, my God, just crazy notes. Here we go. Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 a day for one to two weeks. Anything strike you about that? Well... Uh... Yeah, they told them what the experiment was. Well, and they're getting people who are already somewhat interested in prison life, right? Sure. Sure. What about the people that they're actually selecting? What what do you think the overlap is between Stanford students and the prison population is? (laughs) Not very good. Probably not great, right? No. Probably not great for prison guards either. Right. If you really get right down to it. Nobody has any experience with it. Right. If we were to talk about statistical significance, just that kind of fancy math stuff, right? Right. Said like, if you're trying to sample any population of over... Yeah, it's a very specific population. They pulled only Stanford students. They pulled only Stanford students, but also just even if you're trying to sample the population of, let's even like be generous and just say the prison population, 1.2 million people in the U.S. apparently as of uh, 2020 or 2021, um, which is crazy. That's that's an insane amount of people to be in prison. Um, That, uh, that, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there thinking about how many people that is. Um, We added this part out too. No, <laughs> you would still need like two thousand people to really get a statistically to keep a margin of error for anything that you're really trying to say with any sort of mathematical significance. Sure. Um, the margin of error, if you've got like nine people, is like twenty five percent for any data that you're collecting. Right, and that's it's not great. No. No, but I I don't know. Like, does this does this study really want to put a number on anything? Does it want to quantify something 
that needs to be like, if you're doing a drug study and you need to say how many people are cured versus how many, say, say a vaccine study, how many people get sick, how many people don't get sick. You have a number. Here's and a number. the thing that people, here's the thing that people don't. This talk is about, almost though. a theory though. Like you just want to say, yeah, doing this fucks everything up. Right. It makes people wild. Um, so his i i think the uh the the problem is the problem the problem the problem is that not every guard was like that which a lot of the guards were very personable with the prisoners right it was only if it was only a few guards yeah and then you're taking your extreme outliers and calling them the you know that's what gets heavily publicized about the study um the other thing is that the, the people that they collected are interested in prison life. The guy who's supposedly the worst guard, he is said in interviews after the fact, and he said at the time, you know, he, because they weren't told that they were part of the study, first of all, they thought that they were expected to provoke certain reactions from the prisoners. So like this guy who was called John Wayne, um, who is the, you know, the kind of ringleader of the ringleader of the tormentors, uh, I'm going to leave that. That's a little, little, little bony for Adam. Uh, he, uh, he said that he was emulating his performance, which he thought he was doing was a performance after, you know, the, the prison guard from cool hand Luke. Um, okay. A lot of them thought they were playing characters. Like they're just, I could see that. Students. Yeah, I could see that too. Like, here's your role, play your role. Right. So a lot of the none of the prisoners supposedly suffered any long term damage, um, and mo a lot of people like particularly that one guard just came out after the fact and was like, you know, they're being like pushed to play a role. Like, yeah, maybe I was a. I, I think I, I watched an interview with him, and it's not exactly how he phrased it, but he he said to the effect of like, you know, I was young and and may, did I get off on it? Maybe like I was like twenty. Sure. Yeah. You know, you're but. not, you're not, uh, you're not, there's that old analogy of how we're all just rocks in a bag. And when we go in that bag at an early age, we got a lot of rough edges. And as we rub up against people and things and go through life, we smooth out. We're all gizzards. Yeah, sure. Is that what a gizzard is? Like a, like a turkey neck? Yeah. And that how they chew the food is like. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. What yeah, are you the, trying the, to say? What do you mean? Uh, uh, the, uh, birds have like a sack full of like rocks. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, Isn't that like a gizzard? Okay. That's Isn't that okay. a gizzard? Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll give yeah. it to you. Okay. All right. Yeah, that wasn't I crazy. Wanna, I just didn't understand. Didn't feel like explaining well, myself I'm glad to you, did. frankly. No, um, makes sense. So, yes. The results of the study certainly didn't go to show what he he intended to show, which was, you know, he wanted to really show that bad environments uh, make bad people. But, the, you know, the problem is you can't separate the, the his actions from his environment, right? Yeah. And there is even recordings of, of the experimenters kind of coaching the guards to be harder on the prisoners and do this or do that. Like, it was not a neutral environment. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is an example of somebody who went into an experiment. Manifest destiny. 
who knew what they were going to see. And so yeah. they manifested it, yeah. you know, at the end of the day. So whether you think that's right or whether you think that's wrong, um, that that's up to you. But as an experiment, it has very little value. Some yeah. people are trying to reinterpret the results more along the lines with the Milgram experiment, uh, along the lines of like, well, you know, it doesn't show that, you know, the, the what he went out to show. But what it does show is, you know, people can be very cruel when uh, they're prompted to by by this person or that person. There's another. I don't know how I would phrase this an idea that goes into. People talk about this with the Milgram experiment, too. When you're put in, when people get brought into an experiment and they know it's an experiment and they get put into a position that they know they're on a coin flip. Uh, this happened in the Milgram experiment. Uh, this happened with with this, where they know they're getting involved and there's going to be prisoners and there's going to be guards. And they know they could be one group or they could be the other. The people who get assigned the group with the position of power, there's a weird incentive to believe that they can't go far enough as to hurt somebody because somebody else is in charge. Sure. This is a controlled environment. Yeah. That's what people bring up with the Milgram experiment with the, with the shocking thing is that people think like, well, first of all, I could have been on the other side of this. So I, I can't be allowed to hurt somebody that much. Right. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, just people are complex, right? Yeah. Like you can't. You yeah, can't, I guess you, you would think that, like, well, I mean, how bad could I be shocking this guy? Like, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're the prison prison guard, you're thinking, like, well, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, we're all getting paid. I could have been the prisoner. Like, you know if what? I was being too bad, somebody would come in and say, stop this. I'd, I'd like to think of what would happen if you and I were in the Milgram experiment. And who would get more carried away with it? Ah, yeah, I know. I know. I'd love to think that I would be the guy who like, no, I'm not going to shock. No, this, oh, this buddy, feels wrong. I'm I would just be it. like hammering that button every 10 <laughs> seconds and dying laughing. <laughs> you wouldn't get to shock me. Oh, yeah, I would. 100%. 100%. No, that's not how it worked. Nobody yeah. was being shocked. No, no, I... But I thought you were being shocked. If I was the actor on the other side, you I would think I was being shocked. I'd be yeah. hitting that every 10 seconds. <laughs> well, that's why I, they wouldn't have a guy like me be the actor. I'm too unlikable. <laughs> I think we should maybe, I think that would be a good like side episode, maybe throw in the Patreon. It's like we do the Milgram experiment, but use like actual... You know, like couple not, couple nine volts or something, and just like, no, yeah. So, so you could never, um, you know, a funny thing about this experiment. I said, I just said we were going to bring this up later, and I do want to bring this up now. You could never do this experiment now. So, first of all, you'd never get past the ethics board because the ethics board would <laughs> okay. be like, first of all, listen, you, my science has no room for ethics. Yeah, like you can't like. You can't not first of all, you can't not tell the guards that they're a part of the experiment. That's that's a that's a violation. Um a lot of what happened to the prisoners is a violation. By the way, did you think that how anything did the guards that happened not know to the they're prisoners, part of it? Did you think that the anything that happened to the prisoners uh rose to the level of physical abuse? 
yeah, I mean, there's you don't have to physically touch somebody to cause them discomfort you know, or harm. Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. making somebody stand, making somebody do For all like, those things. A, 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 could have been a long time. Like I'm hoping that that guy could sit down. College student. Hopefully he could wiggle down and and sit down in two by two space. Probably could be hard to get up, but I'm you know he's presumably, but like awful, terrible, yeah. um, taking <clears throat> stripping people nude, taking away their blankets and clothes. I think that's yeah, I, yeah. When shooting I was, somebody with a fire extinguisher, I you know that's not what I, what any of them signed up for. When I was a kid, I was it's, um, that's not abuse like abuse, but yeah. When I was a kid, I was a cadet. And uh, so we had. Um, <laughs> and as an adult, you're a space cadet. <laughs> yeah, whoa. Uh, bird. Anyhow, and uh, it was, you'd have, you know, people who were slightly, so, you know, say I'm 13, 14. There's a, there's a guy who's 16, 17 who can basically order me around, right? Like the, with a higher rank, I guess. And when yeah. we would when we would go on some of these camps, because I'm so mouthy, I would always get in trouble. And they they there's a is thing that a where, pattern that's repeated into your adult life? <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, there'd be like this. <laughs> they had this punishment that they would give you, where they'd make you hold your boots out far from your like outstretched. And or no, it sure. might have even oh, been. Oh yeah, it, it, I think it was just pillows. And dude, like five like, minutes. No, not terrible. even like a minute. And you're like, okay, man. Yeah. They're like, no, keep going. And you're like, God damn it. <laughs> but like, it's that micro kind of thing where you give somebody a little bit of power and all of a sudden it just goes to their head. That is a legit thing that does happen. And I think that's the fascination with that is just because it's a well-documented um, thing, but like you said, it also has a lot of biases. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing, though. We talk about sample size and we talk about even if you got it through the ethics board, because you'd never be able to, right? If you went to the the, the money people, which is the next step, you're right. like, all right, I'm going to do an experiment on prisons. So like, great, what's the first step? And you're like, I'm going to build a prison. They'd be like, next. <laughs> be- nope. And you know why? Because this might surprise you, but America and Canada and, and a lot of places in the world have a lot of prisons. So if you wanted to study prisons, you know where you could go? Yeah. To one of the many fucking prisons right? that exists and and you know what kind of like sample population you could get out of one of those many fucking prisons? Uh, Enough to be statistically fucking significant within like a two percent sure. uh, range. Um, and then there's just the problem of that a lot of social studies have, which is at the end of the day, this is one guy's opinion. One guy's read of sure. a lot of stuff, and he's uh, going to quantify yeah. his read into some data, and he's going to submit that. But like. That's his opinion of what's going on, and you know, were the the guards and the prisoners kind of playing it up? Um, obviously, some people were in some considerable distress, and like, I'm not saying it was like a great time for everybody. It was obviously a terrible time for some people, and like, shit went wrong. Right. But I think the the, the experience. I just don't think there's any useful data 
you can extrapolate from this horrible experience that a bunch of people had. Right. But it is pretty fascinating. Fascinating. Yes. Speaking of horrible uh, experiences, I hope you enjoyed this episode. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for not making that about my sex life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. You want to close in fact to put a bow on everything? I sure just do. Just shut her down since this episode's gone a little longer than we normally <laughs> Absolutely. Go. Are you ready And after for this, this, we're going straight to bed and not doing anything else. <laughs> Did you know? Uh, it's not like it's not like a like a hard fact, but it's just a little something to talk about. Uh, hmm. Did you know that there's reflectors on the moon? Yes. Since 1969, reflectors left by the Apollo program have been used to measure the Earth-Moon distance using lunar laser ranging. Yep. And you can also kind of use them. There's some way. I I don't know if we use them to kind of test the speed of light, too. Right. Um, But, uh, yeah. It's neat. I wish that I could just shine like a a laser pointer up there Mm. and just get it to like bounce back. Should be really cool. Need a very powerful laser. I know. I know. Yeah. But there's a lot of like you, a you know, the the moon landing skeptical people. It would be nice to just be like, hey dude, point this laser up there. How'd that get there? Right. You know? It would be nice if optics get good enough to the point see where the lunar? Could just point yeah, point oh, their phone man. and just see the see the lunar or see the plaque or like the flag yeah, or something. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> that, I, um, that would be great. Yeah. Or if Buzz Aldrin could just go door to door and punch all those people <laughs> in the face. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Facts Max. We hope you enjoyed our show. If you want to hear more, be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash facts Or you can check us out on Facebook or on YouTube or on twitter.com at factschmackedpod. We also have a website, factschmax.xyz, because we know you haven't had enough yet. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>